What do American evangelicals believe about God, about salvation, about ethics and the Bible? What do we believe? What's the temperature? Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, which is Southern Baptist Press, they partner together, and every two years they do a theological survey of evangelicals, all right? People who agree, 90% of whom agree that God is perfect, he exists in three persons, they believe in the bodily resurrection, that it's real, that, that people are made righteous through works, but not through works, but through, through faith in him. They survey these people, and they determine, okay, so what's the state of American theology among evangelicals? So let's start with the first introductory question that they ask, and that is this. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Okay? 26% of evangelicals agree with that statement. 56% of Americans in general believe in that statement, but that's not surprising. A quarter of people who attend churches like ours say that's true. To state in another way, they would say, the Bible, it really begins in Genesis 12. <laughs> right? All that, all that introductory stuff, eh, I don't know so much about that. Creation, the fall, the flood, eh, I don't know, maybe the Jonah stuff. See, the authors of this study called the, the rejection of divine authorship of the Bible the clearest and most consistent trend over their eight years of doing, every two years, for eight years they've done this study. It makes it easy, if you believe that, for us to accept biblical teaching that resonates with us while at the same time, you know, if it doesn't, then we'll just do what we want to do. You see, if you say, I worship Jesus but I don't believe the Bible. You're really saying I worship a Jesus that I'm comfortable with because I created him with my own opinion, my own biases, my own preferences. I'll pick and choose. That's a fake Jesus because anything we know about the real Jesus comes from the scripture. So the Bible, is it helpful and not literally true? You know, you're all, you all are bothering me this morning because you're all sitting in different seats. You understand that. Because <laughs> we took two rows down and there's no patio, so it's a big mush and mumble today, a, a jumble of people. You're all in different places driving me nuts. <laughs> but it's kind of nice. <laughs> you might, <laughs> we'll see. Okay, moving on. We Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. It is the, large, the longest, it's a hymn, but it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an acrostic, it's an alphabet psalm, A, B, C, D. When the psalmist wrote it, and he's not named, sat down to write it, he used the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet as a guide. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, and the A, B, G, whatever, and they go through the alphabet. And so he ended up writing 22 eight-verse stanzas. Every verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the most interesting part is not that, that he wrote it as an acrostic. The most unusual uh, thing about it is that it's, it's all about the glories of the Bible. It's in praise of the Word of God. The longest chapter in the Bible is all about the Bible. And every verse, with rare exception, um, has a direct reference to the Bible. And to give it some variety, he calls the Bible all kinds of different things. He says, 
He uses law, testimonies, judgment, precepts, statutes, on and on. Those words are all synonymous with, with the spoken word, with the written revelation of God. So I want us to look at one verse this morning to kind of tie our thoughts together. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. In the NIV, it says this, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. In the ESV, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In the New Living, it says, Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. So I'm going to use that verse to explore whether or not we should consider the Bible as literally true or not. Because this psalmist believes three things about the scriptures. Number one, the Bible is God's word. He says, your word, O Lord. A word is a revealed thought. You wouldn't know what I was thinking unless I told you in words. You'd be totally left in the dark about what God thinks or says unless he communicates that to us in words. And the psalmist uses the singular word, not the plural, words. And the difference, I think, is crucial. He says your word is settled, not your words are settled. The plural, it wouldn't be wrong. He could have said that, but he didn't because he takes the whole thing and he says the whole thing is your word and it's, your, it's all your word. And every verse, every word is from God. And if it's from God, it, it seems like it has to be literally true. Now, I'm going to hopefully in this series of, I didn't even introduce the series. Really, we're going to look at these things from the survey in, in, hopefully, through this process, we'll learn to think theologically. Because you are all theologians. I'm not saying you are all good theologians. You are all theologians. Everybody is. Even an atheist is a theologian. If he believes doesn't God, God doesn't exist, he believes that about God. And so, at some point, we have to understand the, the theological concept of what's behind this verse in Psalm 119. And one of the ideas, theologically, is the concept of inspiration. If it's all God's word, then we better understand what inspiration is. How did, how did we get it? The New Testament version of Psalm 119.89 is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, when I taught you, Paul says, you heard which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. When Paul stood and delivered the message to the Thessalonian believers, when he underscored, well, this is what Moses said, and this is what Jeremiah said, and this is what Amos said, and this is how it all fits together, you understood that as being from the word of God. And that should do something to us. The print that we read is, in fact, it's God's message to us. It's his word to us. It stands alone. It's God's book. It's his voice. So, so how did that happen? 2 Timothy 3, verse you're very familiar with, especially if you're in Awana. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a purpose behind it all, but we're just looking at this concept of inspiration. It is God-breathed. And he says all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever's in the list, is, is inspired, all of it. It's God-breathed. It's passive. It means it comes out of Him. All right? It's the result of the breath of God. God breathed out something. The scriptures. So it all begins with God. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us as much as anybody else about this process of inspiration. He says they are moved along, these prophets are moved by the Spirit. That verb moved, it occurs elsewhere in the New Testament in Acts 27, verse 15. It describes the ship that Paul is on as he's going from Caesarea to Rome. And they encounter a storm, and it says this storm moved the ship. It tossed it here and there. It was carried about. And in the same way as that ship is driven and directed and carried by the wind, God drove and, 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 and directed and carried these human authors. However, does that mean the people on the ship, the sailors, were inactive in this process? No. You don't just sit in the middle of, you know, and let the storm do whatever. You got to keep it steady. You got to keep it afloat. They, they had to work hard. And I think it's the same way that the Holy Spirit is that guiding force that directed the writers. They have an active role in this process. They did research. They wrote by the style that was prevalent in their day. They chose their words carefully. They reflected on the literature of their culture. But even so, God used them through inspiration that the final product is not dictation, it's inspiration. He didn't say, here's what you write. Okay, that, that's not what inspiration means. So let's define it, shall we? The bare bones of it is this. God carried men along, so they wrote his message down in the Bible. You want a better theological definition? It's this. God superintended, I love that word. He superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind or humanity in the words of their original writings. He superintended them. What document, is this document inspired? The correct answer is no. This is a copy, this is a translation. What was inspired? The original, the original text. Not the copies not the translations. Now, do they bear the image of that inspiration? Well, let's hope so. But the original document was inspired. And in describing inspiration, theologians add a word called plenary. They talk of the plenary inspiration of the Bible. That means the whole of the completeness. You go to a conference, a seminar, and they have a plenary session. It means that's for everybody to come to. Okay, to speak of plenary inspiration means every part of the Bible is equally inspired and every part of the Bible is equally true. What the Bible says in Genesis is just as true as in Judges or the Song of Solomon or Revelation. 
There's no part that's more inspired or more true than other parts, which is why I'm really not a huge fan of red-letter Bibles. Because we look at a red-letter Bible, you know, a red-letter Bible means everything Jesus says in red, so you can see it. Are those words more inspired than the black words next to it? No. No, they're all the same. See, this is a high view of biblical inspiration, but it is what the church has generally believed throughout the centuries. Now, if I say that, does that mean there are no problems? No, there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of issues we have with, with verses, and there are difficulties in some of the texts that I don't have easy answers for. But the fact that we cannot fully answer every question doesn't destroy our faith that this book was inspired. Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, paraphrase, I would rather believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible than to stand with those who doubt. I can live with the problems and with the questions I cannot fully answer while I wait patiently for answers to come. And while I wait, I'm standing on the rock of God's truth. He says, this is my word. Second thing in this Psalm, Psalm 119, back to that, he says the Bible is God's firm word. He adds this fact, it stands firm in the heavens. The idea means it's, it's settled. It's firmly fixed as an object that can't be moved. You could build a skyscraper. They put most of the building down under the ground. You've got to get down to the bedrock and put your foundation there so that the building will survive a hurricane or an earthquake. You've got to go deep if you want to go high. And to say that God's word stands firm mean that, means that it's driven down deep in the bedrock of heaven. Because nothing that happens on earth can change God's word in heaven. It's firm. And this stands out when you consider that we live in such an unsettled world. We have undergone so much change in the last few years. And even in the best of times, things change. Friends come and go. Jobs come and go. Marriages are made and broken, and yesterday's promises are just, just today's distant memories. You get sick all of a sudden, and your world is, is upside down. But against all of these realities is this truth. God's word does not change because it is settled in heaven. In our modern theological discussions, we would say the Bible is without error. It's inerrant. Here we go, more theology. You're so excited. I am. Inerrancy. To be inerrant means what? It means to be without error. To put it in, the, that's the negative. To put it positively, it means the Bible's true. The Bible is truth without error in all of its parts and in all of its words. Are there lies in the Bible? Yes, but they quote Satan accurately. <laughs> are there approximations? Of course there are. Are there figures of speech? Of course there are. Can you be in an evangelical and deny the truth that the Bible is without error? Apparently so, because some do. Because to be a Christian means to be rightly related to Christ. But can you be a biblicist, one who believes in the literal Bible and deny inerrancy? Well, not if the Bible teaches its own inerrancy. So it comes down to accuracy. See, to deny inerrancy, it might lead you to some questionable theological conclusions. So how does Jesus weigh in on this subject? What does he say? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. 
Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So Jesus says, I'm here, I'm here to fulfill, I'm not here to abolish or erase what went before, whatever those promises are. And what are, what, what are the, the, the scope of those promises? It's the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament in his day. But at what level of detail are those promises in the Old Testament going to be fulfilled? He says, for I tell, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What's the smallest letter? There it is. It's a yod. It looks kind of big. So what does it look like in a word? See, it's that little thing right on the end. It's, we would call it a comma, but it's a Y, basically. In English, it's an apostrophe but it's a small but powerful letter. He says not even the smallest letter will pass away, but he goes even deeper than that. He says not even a part of a letter. Okay, on the, on the left is a D, on the right is an R. And what's the difference? Forget the dot, I couldn't do it without the dot. Just that little thing. I'm just gonna bring my little pointer too. See the little thing? Oh, wait a minute, go back to the other one. See the little thing hanging off on the top of the D? You don't know which one's a D. This is a D. Are you lost completely? There's not much difference between these two letters, but that little thing hanging out over the, this way, right? This makes it a R. This makes it a D. Okay. Let's try a B in the other letter. Let's try the next one. A B and a C. The, really the only difference if you were writing it is that little thing hanging out at the bottom of the B. That's a B. Comes down this, and if you go this way, it's a C. Just a little tiny... Okay? Minutia matters. Details are important. Letters and parts of letters matter. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, he again reaffirms the importance of the minutia of the scriptures. John 10, verse 24. The Jews who were gathered together around him, they were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense if you're the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus answers, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. I and the Father are one. One, one what? It's in the neuter. We don't have tenses, I mean, gender so much. Uh, it, it, we do in English, but you know, some languages have more. Here, it's neuter. He says one thing. He's not saying one person. In other words, he didn't assert that he and the Father were identical, but that he and the Father possess essential unity. Gender matters. He says that he enjoys a perfect unity of nature, of his actions with the Father. And the Jews, they, they asked, are you the Messiah? And his answer was more than they can bargain for because what he's doing really is claiming to be equal with God. And so what do they do? In the text, they pick up stones. It's blasphemy. They understood it. Then he moves in this text to quote a rather obscure, un unidentified author psalm psalm 82 and he goes on to this very complex discussion 
See, it, he, it didn't even have to be written by David. It was important. My point is that he could use it because all scriptures without error, even the gender of the words used. Later on, he's confronted by the Sadducees who they didn't believe in any life after death. You lived, you died, and that was it. Because if they couldn't prove anything happened in the, in the first five books of the Bible, then they didn't believe it. So he meets him in this kind of this meet the press moment and face the Jewish nation scene and these peoples who don't believe anything they couldn't find the first, that they couldn't find in the first five books of the Bible. They ask him about what? Resurrection. And they concoct, you know the story. They concoct this story about seven brothers. The first one marries this gal, he dies. The second one marries the same gal, she, he dies, and so on through. And they all, they've got seven dead brothers, and there's one woman who's married, been married to all seven of them. Who's she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says what? In, verse, in Matthew 22, 28. Now then, at the resurrection, they ask, whose wife will she be of the seven, since they were all married to him, to her? Verse 29, Jesus replied, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said? And he goes to where? The Pentateuch, the first five books. He goes to Exodus. He says, I am the God of Abraham. God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead, but the living? It's a rather sophisticated argument again. Just like he did in John 10, he bases his argument on, on the written word of God. Not on general concepts, but based on a specific word. This time he goes to Exodus 3. You know, guys, it's in the Torah in case you missed it. And he uses the tense of the verb to be. He says, I am the God. He doesn't say, I was the God. Because if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who'd been dead 400 years before Moses, if, if they had been dead and not resurrected, he, he, the correct thing would be, I was the God. But if they're still alive... If there's a resurrection, he can say, I am the God. And so Jesus built the doctrine of the resurrection on the present tense of Moses standing in front of that burning bush. Tense matters. Gender of the words matter. Letters matter. Parts of letters matter. You see, if the Bible claims to be truth and truth from God, it's got to be inerrant without error in the words of the original manuscripts. If it's true, it's literally true. And so now you're thinking, hopefully, but what about all those copies, you know? How do I know what I have here today is an accurate reflection of what they wrote in the original manuscripts? And I'm really glad you asked. Because I'm gonna do an illustration this morning. We'll see how this works. These are traffic cones. All right, so we have in the middle of the pulpit here, this is, this is, doesn't matter, zero, the life of Christ, somewhere in here. Okay, the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. So each of these is 100, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, Isaiah is written here, the original manuscript. 
What, when was the earliest manuscript we have? Don't answer because I don't want you to spoil it. Think in your mind, what's the earliest we, copy we have of this manuscript? The earliest copy of this manuscript was in the Masoretic text, which was compiled at the end at 1000 AD. We're 1,000, we're another 1,300 years that way. So you're telling me there's 1,700 years between the earliest copy we had and when it was originally written. That's true until 1947. The Dead Sea Scrolls. They, have a, they found a copy in those scrolls of a, cop, of a, of a copy of the, the full scroll of Isaiah written about 100 B.C. So what do they do? If you're smart, you take that copy and you compare it to this copy. This is a huge gap. And what did they discover? They discovered it's virtually the same from there to here. There's a few misspellings. There's a few... Um, how did they put it? The comparison study, after they found the texts were practically identical, most variants were minor spelling differences and none affected the meaning of the text. So if it's been copied correctly from here to here in this huge gap, you can trust this one. It, it's, it's the veracity of the copying of the Word of God because once 1400 comes, Another 14 paces there. Then we have a printing press. And then it doesn't have to be hand copied anymore. So back to Psalm 119. It is God's word. It is God's firm word. Third thing he says is the Bible is God's eternal word. He says, your word, O Lord, is eternal. Stands firm in the heavens. Eternal is a Hebrew word that's used over 400 times in the Old Testament. It means everlasting, perpetual, forever, unending. It's a word that talks about no beginning, no ending. It continues forever. And if you apply that to the word of God, what does it mean? It means that what God has said is always going to be true. It's true now. It will be true forever. There will never be a time when you wake up and discover that God's word is no longer true. It is forever. Can't say that about what we say or what we read. We can't say that about our own words. We change, we revise, we amend, we edit. Nest, yesterday's truth becomes tomorrow's, you know, oh, that was kind of crazy what they believed. But that's not true with God. There's no delete button. There's no autocorrect. He never has to change his words or revise his opinion. He doesn't have to edit his commands. They're settled in heaven forever. If they are legend and not literally true, would they be eternal? So what? We've got to get practical. What does all this mean for us? I think it means we can draw three conclusions. Number one, we can trust the Word of God. It's God's Word. It's not merely the religious opinions of certain men who lived thousands of years ago. It's trustworthy. Even our best friends might mislead us intentionally. They might not get their facts straight, but the word of God is true. You can trust it. 
Second, we should not be overly worried by the skeptics. There are skeptics, and they're always attacking it. That's okay. There's some great resources out there to help you to bolster your confidence in the Word of God. From the beginning, some have doubted the resurrection. That's eh, not bodily. Or, or they've attacked the deity of Christ. They've mocked us for, for having a religion based on superstitions. You can't believe the virgin birth. You can't have all these miracles. Like Voltaire, they've predicted that modern science and, and human knowledge is going to render Christianity obsolete. But in the words of Bernard Ram, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription on the cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. And though there are people today who make a living at attacking the scriptures, it has stood so far every test and every challenge. And kingdoms rise and, and, and armies do battle and rulers come and go and, and fashion changes and, and grips the imagination. But God's word will stand. It hasn't been defeated yet. Third application. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 6. We must love the author of the word. Because the danger for us as believers in the word is that we, we face the same danger that the Jewish religious leaders faced in the first century. That we so honor the word we follow it so literally that we forget its purpose. Its purpose is that we might love and experience and know God. The book of Deuteronomy is really four sermons preached by Moses to the generation right before they were ready to cross the Jordan River and enter the land. This, this people, 40 years ago, their fathers had left Egypt and their mothers, their families. They had seen the greatness of God. They had experienced the presence of God on Mount Sinai. They had seen the shaking mountain. They'd heard the voice of God like a trumpet. They'd picked up manna six days a week for 38 years. But a new generation has now grown up and they're about to enter the land. What do they need to know? Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Sometimes life is so routine that we miss its purpose. We get up, we eat, we shower, we go to work, we come home, we rest, we, we eat dinner, we watch TV, we work and work and shower and work. And Where do you inject meaning into that cycle? See, the word teaches us to understand that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses says, come to know him as your only God. And then the command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is something I want you to put in your heart, he says. We can get confused about what it means to love God, but it's got to... We, we, we think it's, it's some overwhelming emotional experience that we have. We call that worship sometimes. We're, over, we're, we're awed by the greatness of God. But that isn't all what love is. It's, it's this trustful obedience. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
He was simply stating the fact that love and trustful obedience are the same thing. What does that look like in the life of a follower of God? Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. Impress these things you know about God. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit up at home. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He says, this is something I want you to have on your heart. And you bring children into your family. These are things I want you to teach them. This isn't just some religious or intellectual exercise. I want God to be part of the fabric of your life. I want it to take place when you go to sleep at night, when you wake up in the morning, when you walk, when you play, when you work, when you go on vacation. These should characterize your lifestyle. Model knowing me and loving me with all your heart. I want your children to absorb these same convictions so they will have an impression of me, God, when you're gone. If you have young children, have you ever thought about what your family will be like when you're gone? That's what he's talking about. How important was this for Israel? They're standing on the verge of a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. They're like toddlers, though. They're just learning to, 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 to crawl into the land, and as they do that, that land is crawling with idolaters. Moses is about to die. They're going to be alone. They're only going to have the memory of his instructions. And soon they're going to be raising their children in houses they had not built. They were going to be eating the, the fruit of land they had never tilled. They would drink from wells they had not dug. And Moses is so concerned about them that these people who had, had cultivated such a simple walk with God in the desert are going to be dazzled by the idolatry and the affluence of the land they were coming into. And what was the danger? A diminished love for God. That's why he, he tells them to, to print the, the words of God on your doorposts of your house. Write them on your hands and your foreheads. Do not forget that they were a people who knew and loved Yahweh. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 6, but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is in the case today. Two prepositional phrases that he ends with are important. That we, want, that we might always prosper and be kept alive. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we think, all these things God tells us to do, he just, you know, he's trying to take our fun away. Every command is for our good, often for our survival. I'm not gonna give you five steps to knowing and loving God, it doesn't work that way. There's no mechanical process. It's a daily, lifetime, I'm giving my life today in pursuit of God. Today, I'm gonna love God more. Piece by piece, day by day, little by little, month by month, it permeates our whole frame of reference. That's what Moses wanted for Israel. 
He wants us to know the author of this book, not just the book. I think back of Jesus coming to the home of Simon, who was a Pharisee. After this journey to his house for dinner, he comes in and he looks and Simon, you know, just sees this dusty Nazarene preacher whose claims could probably be interpreted as, well, delusional. And Jesus' feet were pretty dirty. Offering foot washing to a guest was deeply ingrained in their culture for thousands of years. To not on offer it to your guest is to dishonor your guest. So it's likely that Simon didn't just simply forget to do it. But Jesus wasn't offended. He went in. They had a meal. They, pleasantries were exchanged. And all of a sudden, they turn around. And in the doorway of the house, there's a woman with a jar in her hands. She comes in. She stands before Jesus. She begins to sob. And she drops to her knees. And as her tears flow, she leans over and lets her tears fall on the dirty feet of the Savior. She wiped them off along with the dirt with her hair. And she kissed his feet. As a Pharisee, Simon enjoyed a pretty good reputation among the people. And yet in front of all of these dinner guests, there's this woman with a sleazy reputation. They all knew she was a lawbreaker. And yet in front of them all, Jesus said that this debauched woman actually loved God much. While the ritually clean Pharisee loved God little. He who is forgiven little loves little, Jesus said. Why? Because Simon, uh, because the woman believed that she desperately needed the forgiveness that Jesus could provide and Simon did not. You see, that's what Jesus is looking for. The kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. For at its essence, true worship is a passionate love for God. Not a moralistic rule. Not making sure you keep every jot and tittle. Not feats of self-discipline. For sinners like us, the fuel of that love is the profound realization in the words of the, 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 the famous ex-slave trader John Newton, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. See, that's where the word needs to lead us because that is what it means to love him. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want our confidence in your word to grow. And I pray that we might Find in your word a connection to you that is deep and rich, not legalistic, but that we might be a people who come like this woman and bow at your feet because we have been forgiven so much that we want to worship you. May your word lead us to that, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen.